0: I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Louisville, Kentucky. The city, which is the oldest city west of the Appalachian Mountain Range, was founded in 1778 by George Rogers Clark and named after King Louis XVI of France. Louisville has played a large part in America's history. The song Happy Birthday was written by two Louisville sisters, and the Seelbach Hotel served as the inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel The Great Gatsby. The event most associated with Louisville is the Kentucky Derby. Think men and women wearing their finest clothes, big hats, and the official drink of the Derby, mint juleps. The racetrack, Churchill Downs, was actually founded by Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr., the grandson of William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. The Derby is the first leg in the Triple Crown, along with the Preakness and Belmont Stakes, and has the distinction of having run annually uninterrupted since 1875. And yes, in 2020 during COVID, it ran after being postponed for four months to September. Interestingly, 95% of the world's bourbon is produced in Kentucky. Although the city of Louisville is best known for its mint julep, the old-fashioned, a cocktail made with Kentucky bourbon, was invented at a private club in Louisville that is still open. But in 1924, the event Louisville residents were fixated on was not the Derby, but an incredible tale of obsession and vengeance, and how mixing these emotions created the most dangerous cocktail of all. This episode was
1: largely based on the article The Torture House on historicalcrimedetective.com. It was originally published in February 1930 and was based on a first-hand story by Louisville Police Detective Lieutenant William Oldian. On Saturday, March 8, 1924, at approximately 6.30 p.m., a call came into the Louisville Police Department headquarters. The male caller shouted into the phone. A man has been shot. You'll find him at 637 South 34th Street and then immediately hung up. Louisville Police Detective Lieutenant William Oldian grabbed several of his men and raced to the scene. When they arrived at the address in an upscale neighborhood, officers found a man's body in a bedroom on the second floor. Investigators did not need to check to see if the man was dead. There was a large bullet hole in his neck and another near his heart.
0: The man was lying next to a mattress that was on the floor. Which, Kath, I read was very odd to detectives because a respectable home always has a bed frame.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) At all four corners of the mattress, steel spikes were driven into the floor to keep the mattress in place. Directly next to the mattress was a tray of surgical instruments. 23-year-old Mrs. Mary Leahy Heaton Was kneeling next to the man's body and told the police the man was her husband, 33 year old Richard Heaton. He was a partner at a prosperous merchandise brokerage and he was a well known and reputable citizen of Louisville. The Heatons lived in a home about four miles from where Mrs. Heaton found her husband's body and they lived there with their six year old daughter and three year old son. Also in the room when detectives arrived was Dr. Herbert Schoonover, who was visiting nearby and ran over when he heard the shots. Mrs. Heaton told Lieutenant Yen that she was standing in the foyer of the house when a man came barreling down the stairs and ran right past her out the front door. Mrs. Heaton noticed there were handcuffs on his wrists and he was trembling. She then told the lieutenant that she recognized this man. His name was William Gates and he worked for her husband up until four years prior. She also told the lieutenant that Gates was one of her husband's lifelong friends and the best man at their wedding.
0: Then Mrs. Heaton dropped the bombshell that her husband had held William Gates prisoner in the house for the last two days. She told the lieutenant that chains were used to secure him to the mattress in the room they were standing in. Looking around, Lieutenant Yen noticed surgical instruments and asked Dr. Schoonover about them. The doctor said the instruments were top quality and whoever purchased the items must have had more than passing knowledge of such things. There was a surgeon's knife, several pairs of forceps, a hemostat, which apparently prevents blood flowing from an open wound, a surgeon's apron, rubber sheets, and rubber gloves. There were a large quantity of bandages, gauze, absorbent cotton, and a large can of chloroform. Dr. Schoonover said it was a complete setup for someone who was going to perform an operation. Detectives also noticed three large watertight boxes in the room, a large butcher knife, and a sharp hatchet. They also found a large quantity of sulfuric acid, which could be used to dissolve a body. Detectives quickly concluded that somebody was going to be dismembered and removed from the premises. When detectives searched Richard Heaton's pockets, they found a business card for Dr. Walter Thomas in Chicago. Based on Dr. Schoonover's opinion on the quality of the instruments, detectives called Dr. Thomas to see if maybe someone had stolen his equipment. After hearing a description of the instruments, he said it didn't sound like anything he owned, but then he told them a strange story.
1: So, Kath, this is a really interesting story. Apparently, a month before detectives called, a man who did not give his name walked into Dr. Thomas's office. The man said he had a feeble-minded relative, and the man wanted to place this relative in a mental institution in the state of Illinois. However, because the relative did not live in Illinois, the doctor could not admit him to a state mental institution. So the doctor told detectives that one week before this murder, the stranger returned and asked the doctor to perform a gland operation on a feeble minded relative. We're not really sure all of what that entails. Gland operation? We don't know. I mean, we've got a couple of glands to choose from, so I'm not really <laughs> sure what he's going to do. So Dr. Thomas said, sure. I'm happy to perform the operation if the glands were actually diseased. However, if they weren't, he would not perform the operation because that would just be malpractice. The stranger then asked Dr. Thomas, how much money do I have to give you to do it? And Dr. Thomas again refused. The man walked out of his office, grabbing one of the doctor's business cards on his way out.
0: Kath, what I thought was really interesting about this story is that Dr. Thomas was a black doctor in Chicago in 1924, which is probably not as unusual as you and I would expect. However, I am sure he felt like he was being set up. Oh, I bet. Can you imagine? Yeah, he's probably like, no, no, no. I've worked too hard to get this license. Thanks very much. Go away. Exactly. I'm not going to compromise it. Lieutenant Oldian noticed imprints on most of the instruments and brought in the police department's fingerprint men. Okay, I was shocked, Kath.
1: And maybe this is just me. I had no idea they were using fingerprints as identification in
0: 1924. It's just you. i just (laughs) No, that. I had no idea. They I had started no idea in 1902. I could see you reading that and being like, what the heck? I when did this begin? I had to look it up because yeah. I'm like, this can't be right. Like that's crazy. Yeah. 1902. <laughs> it's good to know people like were on their game back then. Exactly. So anyway, so the fingerprint men were in the bedroom and officers did a thorough search of the rest of the house. They found a small garage in the rear of the home and discovered several guns and tons of ammunition, apparently. There was also a car parked behind the house with a full tank of gas and an extra tank with five gallons in the trunk. Police are obviously thinking that whoever the culprit is intended to escape.
1: Lieutenant Oldian really wanted to talk to Mrs. Heaton about what was going on, so he took her to headquarters and along with the Louisville Chief of Detectives, Captain Larkin, questioned her under oath. Mrs. Heaton told the detectives that she had eloped with her husband eight years prior in 1916 when she was only 15 years old, which may be more common than it sounds. However, her husband was 25. Yeah, it's a little too old for me. (laughs) She said she believed they had a happy life up until four years ago. That was when her husband suddenly started accusing her of having an affair with William Gates, the man she had already told the police her husband had kept prisoner in that bedroom for two days. Mrs. Heaton continually denied her husband's accusations, but he continued to berate her about this supposed affair. She said this behavior continued for four years up until the day her husband was killed. Mrs. Heaton told detectives that four weeks prior, so we're now in early February of 1924, her husband brought home a female private detective whose job was to shadow Mrs. Heaton's every move, to accompany Mrs. Heaton whenever she left the house, to answer all telephone calls, and to prevent Mrs. Heaton from using the telephone herself. So Heaton never said this outright to his wife, but we know that the private detective was essentially there to prove to him his wife was cheating on him. Mrs. Heaton also told detectives that on Thursday, so this is two days before the killing, her husband rented the house on South 34th Street, for the purpose of taking William Gates there to perform gland surgery on him so he could never do this to another family. Kathy and I disagree about what this means.
0: <laughs> I assume this is junk surgery and Kathy thinks it's prostate surgery. So I don't know. I mean, Because prostate surgery would eliminate the ability
1: for him to ever enjoy any intimate relations. But, but it just
0: seems a bridge too far. I was going to
1: say, and Kathy brought up the very good point of that's internal surgery, yeah, this isn't guy, it? Yeah. yeah. This guy, so, it, I think Kathy's probably right. I think castration was on the table.
0: Yeah. Literally. <laughs> He was going to Lorraine and bob at him. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) so awful. But here's the funny thing: like nothing in the newspapers described this further.
1: No, it didn't. We're left to our
0: wild imagination. Exactly. The next day, Friday, which was the day before the shooting, Heaton came home and laughed and told her that he still had Gates captive. By Saturday afternoon, Missus Heaton was frantic with worry, and her husband had not returned, and she was able to slip away from the private detective call a cab and go to the house where Gates was being held captive. Mrs. Heaton told detectives that when her husband answered the door, he looked terrible. She could tell he hadn't slept for the two prior nights. And she asked him if he still had Gates upstairs. And in response, her husband laughed, basically saying, I'm giving him the scare of his life. I bet he won't bother either of us again. (laughs) That's totally. It's like
1: a black and white movie. Exactly. I can totally see it.
0: Kath, one of the things that was funny about researching this case is all the language from the 1920s in the newspapers. It was like I needed to sit there with a thesaurus, you know. Everything was a euphemism, too.
1: Instead of saying she was having an affair, it was she was
0: like casting aspersion on her home or something like Like that. Like interruption of family time. And like, it's like, oh, there was a lot left to the imagination the way they wrote back then. And gland operation. Gland operation. I really
1: would like to know what that was. I would like
0: to have some clarification, please, sir. (laughs) Objection,
1: (laughs) non-responsive.
0: Exactly. exactly. (laughs) We're dying to know which gland. (laughs) And how. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Mrs. Heaton begged her husband to let Gates go, but he refused to listen to her. He went back upstairs because he was afraid Gates would try to escape. So a few minutes later, now she's standing in the foyer and she hears someone say, don't shoot. Then she heard two shots fired in rapid succession. As she started to go toward the staircase, she heard someone say, who's there? So she identifies herself And William Gates came flying down the stairs like three at a time. And he passed her. He says, I've shot Richard and I'm going for a doctor. So Mrs. Heaton runs upstairs and she finds her husband in the bedroom lying on the floor, which is where she remained until detectives arrived. She said she knelt down and kissed him. She didn't know what else to do. And she stayed with him until the authorities got there. Lieutenant Oldian said in the True Detectives Mysteries piece that he never felt so sorry for anyone as he did for Mrs. Heaton. After she answered all their questions, Captain Larkin and Lieutenant Oldian were both convinced that she was telling them everything she knew and that it was truthful.
1: After Mrs. Heaton left the interview another person showed up at the police station to talk to detectives about Richard Heaton's death. It was Heaton's business partner, William Fisher. So once again, under oath, Fisher tells detectives that Heaton had been acting strangely for quite some time, that Heaton had neglected their business, remained away from the office for long periods of time, never let Fisher know where he was going or how long he was going to be away. And then Heaton told Fisher that several men were trying to break up his home, but there was only one man left. And so as soon as Heaton took care of him, All of his troubles would be over and he would return to the office. Fisher told detectives that Heaton had shared that he rented a house on South 34th Street so he could take the last man who was left to the house and scare him. Heaton wanted to impress upon this man that he was never to cross Heaton's path again. Fisher told detectives, he told Heaton, stop what you're doing. This plan is too dangerous. You are going to get into trouble. Fisher then said that on Friday, so this is the day before the killing, a man named Hyde Conrad brought him a note from Heaton requesting Fisher meet Heaton at the rented house that afternoon. Fisher said he only went to the house because he was helping to bring Heaton to his senses. He said Heaton looked terrible and he could tell he was nervous. He was stressed. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. And as soon as he arrived, Heaton asked Fisher if he would stay in the house while Heaton went home and got some sleep. And Fisher, who was kind of haired out about this whole thing, I think that was actually used as a quote.
0: Exactly. (laughs) We believe that was a colloquial term in 1924,
1: haired out. What's old is new again. You know, the 70s clothes coming back. That's exactly right. And because he didn't understand what was going on, Fisher absolutely refused. So Heaton said, OK, how about if I just go home for a little bit? I can see my wife. I promise I'll only be gone for a half an hour. And so Fisher agreed. He told detectives that Heaton took him upstairs to the back bedroom where Fisher saw a man lying on a mattress. His hands were handcuffed and placed over his head and his legs were chained spread eagle on the floor. There was also a cloth over this man's face. Heaton told Fisher that he put the cover over the man's face because his prisoner was ashamed of what he had done and did not want his identity known, but assured him that the man was secure and could not get loose. Heaton then left the house. So after Heaton left, Fisher said... The man who was lying on this mattress looked like he was super uncomfortable. He was kind of squirming around and he obviously this wasn't a really comfortable position. So Fisher said to this man, hey, if you want to reposition yourself, go ahead. And the man did not respond. Fisher remembered that Heaton told him the man was embarrassed and didn't want his face shown. So Fisher offered, hey, if you don't want to risk the cloth coming off, I will step outside. You rearrange yourself however you need to and I will come back inside. Do you want me to do that? And again, the man did not respond. So Fisher just sat there. About half an hour later, Heaton came home. So Fisher went downstairs to meet Heaton. Fisher told detectives that when he was in that bedroom, he saw a hat and a coat that he thought he recognized. And so Fisher asked Heaton, is that
0: William Gates you have upstairs? And Heaton kind of giggled and said, it might be. It's so bizarre to me that Fisher didn't just lift the thing over the guy's face. Exactly. But shame was a real thing in 1924. There was such a thing as being embarrassed for your actions. And oh. vigilante justice. Oh, it was a thing. But it, it's still like... It's odd.
1: Yes. Especially because this man, William Gates, actually worked with Fisher and Heaton at their brokerage. Right. So Fisher tells detectives he's walking out the front door. He happens to glance over his shoulders up the stairs. He sees the bedroom door is open and Heaton must have taken off this cloth from the man who was on the mattress uh-huh. because the man is now sitting up and Fisher recognized him as William Gates. But after Fisher saw it was William Gates he was frantic he was begging Heaton he was pleading with Heaton let this guy go. But Heaton would not change his mind and then told Fisher if he ever told anyone Fisher would have to answer to him. So Fisher said in the interview that after that he left and went home and never spoke to Heaton again. He told detectives he found out about Heaton's death from someone who called him later that same night after words started getting out about Heaton being killed. Fisher said he was very remorseful that he did not alert the police the night before when he saw William Gates on the bed, but he was truly afraid that Heaton would follow through on his threat. But now Fisher felt that he was somehow responsible for Heaton's death.
0: When Fisher mentioned Hyde Conrad the man who gave Fisher the note to meet Heaton at the rented house, Lieutenant Oldian dispatched officers to bring him back to the station. So Conrad was picked up just after leaving a downtown theater where he worked as an organist. Now, can you imagine that being your job? I'm an organist at a local theater and I'm paid for a full-time job. When I was in eighth grade, Kath, we did a, um, I wish I could remember, it was for history class. And the teacher divided us up into groups and he gave us like a month. And the 1920s was my era with my fellow classmates. And we had to do a presentation on the stage in front of the rest of the eighth graders. And so we reenacted a speakeasy. They used to have dance competitions. And did somebody play the organ for the silent movies? We weren't that sophisticated. So the answer is no. <laughs> but I do like the 20s. Yeah. I like the flapper style. I like the hairstyles. You liked Prohibition because you're not a big drinker. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Hyde Conrad is at the police station and he wasn't able to tell detectives very much other than the fact that he, Gates, and Heaton were close childhood friends. On Thursday, the day Heaton rented the house, now mind you, the killing is on Saturday, Heaton asked Conrad to meet him at his office and follow him to the house on South 34th Street, which Conrad did. When they went inside the house, Heaton introduced him to what they called in the newspapers, a giant of a man, six foot, 200 pounds. So this giant of a man was Frank Cordell. Conrad, who had never met Frank before, asked Frank what was going on at this house. And Frank told him that Heaton was holding a man upstairs who stole some things from Heaton's company. But Frank said everything was all right and don't worry about it. Cordell and Heaton went upstairs for several hours and then Heaton came back downstairs and told Conrad that he needed to take Frank Cordell to the train station. And then, oh, by the way, go pay Frank's hotel bill.
1: So, Kathy, what's funny is that Conrad told police that he never paid the hotel bill. First of all, he didn't have the money and he wasn't going to spend it. And then he said, there's just something really odd about me paying for a man's hotel room who I didn't know. (laughs) But he also didn't tell Heaton that he didn't pay for the bill.
0: Exactly. I'll take you to the train station. The end. Yeah, exactly. Conrad was worried about what was going on with Heaton. So he went back to the house after dropping Frank Cordell off at the train station to find out what was really going on. At Heaton's request, Conrad spent the night in the house. And Kath, what he says in newspaper articles is that he didn't get a good night's sleep because of all the moaning. The next morning, after Conrad spends the night, he tells Heaton, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm leaving and I'm not returning. This is ridiculous, whatever you're doing. And Heaton says, okay, I understand. And by the way, would you deliver a note to my business partner, William Fisher? And Conrad goes, okay, sure. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) What you're doing is crazy, but I'll be
1: your messenger boy. So all of these interviews we've just talked about happened on Saturday after the murder with detectives working late into the night. The fingerprint men told detectives they found only Heaton's fingerprints all over the house, on the surgical instruments, and on all the guns they found, confirming the lieutenant's belief that it was a one-man job. The coroner, Dr. Roy Carter, confirmed that Heaton was shot twice, once in his neck and once just above his heart. The shots were fired, Cath, from an old 41 caliber double-barreled Derringer, which fired lead balls instead of the cylindrical bullets that we see now. So, just a few hours later, on what was now early Sunday morning, March 9th, 1924, William Gates turned himself in.
0: Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone. And so do you.
1: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
0: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
1: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at
2: rosettastone.com slash today, today. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opre ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be Winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. So by now the detectives knew that
1: William Gates was the shooter, and they thought they knew his probable motive. They learned William Gates was a 31-year-old widower, employed as a salesman by Procter and Gamble and lived with his aunt in Logansport, Indiana, about three hours north of Louisville, Kentucky. Gates had lived in Louisville before moving to Logansport, so he was described as being still very popular and well-known there. Also, his late wife's parents still lived in Louisville, and that's whom he stayed with when he was visiting the city. Gates told the chief of police and Lieutenant Oldian that he spent the night with relatives and, after talking the matter over with them, decided to give himself up. Gates was put under oath and told them his story. He said he had known Richard Heaton since childhood. In fact, they grew up together and played together as kids. And he was adamant that he was unaware of Heaton's unfounded suspicion that he was having an affair with Mary Heaton. On Thursday night, two nights before the shooting, Heaton called Gates and asked him to meet at Heaton's office, which was not unusual. But this night, as soon as Gates stepped into the office, Heaton grabbed him and overpowered him. A shocked Gates was then patted down by a man he described as being a giant, who we later found out was Frank Cordell.
0: All of 200 pounds and six feet. And when
1: Cordell patted him down, he took away a pistol that Gates always carried with him. Gates told detectives he was then handcuffed and taken to a house and held captive in an upstairs bedroom.
0: Gates told detectives that he could tell by the look in Heaton's eyes that Heaton was going to hurt him. While handcuffed, Gates was forced to lie on his back on the mattress, and Heaton spread his legs and fastened each ankle to one of the steel spikes in the corner of the mattress. Gates saw surgical instruments and believed he was going to die. Then Gates saw Heaton walk over to the trays of instruments and pick up the chloroform. So, Kath, Gates knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be knocked unconscious, and he knew he was going to have some type of surgery performed on him. When Heaton came over with a cloth full of chloroform, Gates held his breath and just held it as long as he possibly could and then pretended that he was under the influence of chloroform and went limp. Heaton thinks he's under it. He takes the chloroform away. So Gates is pretending to be unconscious and he's just kind of watching Heaton do his thing. And then Heaton kneels down, open Gates's coat and his vest. As the vest open, it falls to the side and the weight of the vest reminds Gates, oh my God, I have this Derringer in the pocket of my vest. Well, Heaton didn't realize it. So now Gates is terrified. He's taken away my top coat. He's opened my vest. I am going to have surgery performed on me while I am conscious. This is terrifying. Anyway, so what happens is Gates is lying there. He does not want to be cut into and tortured while he's conscious. So he pretends that he's semi-conscious and he starts mumbling like, oh, the letter, I sent a letter. And so Heaton's like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And so he starts, I sent a letter. Heaton was going to attack me. So Heaton is now on high alert and he's paying attention. And so through this, I'm calling it, quote unquote, semi-conscious state, Gates reveals that he has written a letter to his aunt that he knew Heaton was going to try to kill him. And if she didn't hear from him, she was supposed to give the letters to the police. So anyway, now Heaton is like, oh, he thinks that somehow it's, the chloroform is like a truth serum. And, you know, Gates is revealing that he did this thing when really it was a fiction, which by the way, like beautiful fabrication. Anyway, so he leaves him alone. He doesn't do anything. But Gates continues to pretend he is unconscious. So this all happened on a Friday, the day after Gates was kidnapped. So Heaton left Gates alone and Gates just pretended to be unconscious, but he was keeping an eye on everything that was happening. So that afternoon, Friday afternoon, Heaton brings Fisher to the house. And as we know already, because of Fisher's interview with the police, Gates had a cloth over his face. Now Gates knew when Fisher was asking him, do you want me to make you more comfortable? Do you want to move? This kind of thing. Gates knew it was Fisher talking to him, but he thought he was being set up. He thought Heaton was on the other side of the door listening, and he thought Heaton was testing to see if he was conscious or not.
1: And I read that Gates feared if Heaton heard him talking to Fisher, he would come in and beat the crap out of him.
0: Exactly. So this whole interaction with Fisher, he was just terrified, and that's why he didn't speak.
1: A few hours after Fisher left, Heaton put Gates in the car and drove to Heaton's office. And so, Kath, the reason Heaton had to take Gates to his office is because this rental house did not have a phone. Fun fact for everyone only about 35% of households at this time in America had a phone in the house. Now, once inside, Heaton placed a pistol against Gates' side and told him to call his aunt in Logansport. Gates was to tell her to send the letters he'd left with her not to the police, but to Heaton and Fisher's brokerage office in Louisville. Gates told detectives, though, that his aunt must have thought he was crazy because he had actually never sent her letters. right? (laughs) She's probably like, sweetie, what do you mean? Exactly. (laughs) Honey, you shouldn't be drinking this early in the day. Exactly. (laughs) But of course, Gates obeyed the instructions. And then after that, he was taken back to the room and chained to the mattress. The next day. So this is Saturday, the day that everything comes to a head. Gates said he thought all day long that his time had come. Heaton apparently came into the room several times and looked at him. And Gates pretended to be asleep each time. But after Heaton did that, he would go over to the trays of surgical instruments and run his fingers over each one. My precious. (laughs) (laughs) Little Lord of the Rings thrown in there. Got to do that. (laughs) Gates told detectives that he really felt mentally he was near his breaking point. So he had to come up with another plan. That night, Gates told Heaton that he had to use the bathroom and could not hold it any longer. So Heaton agreed. And Kath at this point, Heaton had Gates chained to all four corners of the mattress. His arms were both attached to the steel spikes, as were his legs. So Heaton unhooked the two arms and put handcuffs on him and then unhooked the two legs, pulled him to standing, and then with his finger on the trigger, Heaton walked Gates across to the bathroom. When Gates was finished doing his business, or whatever 1924 euphemism we'll use, Heaton made a fatal mistake. When they walked back into the bedroom, rather than first attaching Gates' legs to the mattress and then uncuffing him, Heaton first uncuffed him. Gates now has free feet and free hands and knew now this is the time. If I'm ever going to escape, this is the time to do it. So Gates reached into his vest pocket, pulled out his gun, and said to Heaton, Put him up. Don't waste any time. Gates told detectives that all the color drained from Heaton's face. His eyes got really wild. And then Gates saw this like maniacal smile start to form on Heaton's face and knew what was about to happen. Heaton was going for his gun. So, Gates pulled the trigger twice, once in the throat, once near the heart. The force was such that it caused Heaton to spin around and fall on his back. Gates did not stick around to find out if he was okay. That's when he flew out of the bedroom.
0: Otherwise known as dipping.
1: (laughs) See, it's back. Yeah. (laughs) Kathy's going to start using it again. But that was when, of course, we've already heard the story. He got to the landing on the top of the stairs, yelled out who was there because he had heard a door open earlier, heard Mary Heaton say her name, but just flew by her as fast as he could. And then, of course, repeating what Mrs. Heaton said, as Gates ran past her on the stairs, he said, I shot him. I'm going to go call a doctor. Right. And that's actually what he did. Gates found a phone at a neighbor's house and made the phone call that brought Lieutenant Oldian and his men to the scene of the crime. Gates told detectives that the whole time he was running, he actually thought something in his brain was about to crack. And honestly, I was thinking about this, Kath, two days of mental terror. I can't imagine that he didn't already crack.
0: Right. So we did not read any detail that he was actually cut with any of these surgical instruments, but apparently... Or even beaten up. But like you said, it was psychological torture. Keaton was intentionally making Gates feel like any moment could be his last moment. And a very painful last moment. Gates told
1: detectives that he ran until he was out of breath and then headed for his father-in-law's house. When he got there, he told his relatives about what had happened to him. And after talking to them, Gates realized it was a mistake to run away and immediately made arrangements to surrender to the police. And, you know, Kath, I thought it was interesting that he made arrangements to surrender to to the police. To surrender, exactly. Because in 1924, if you're the subject of a manhunt, what's the chance of it you get out of that alive? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Now, Gates concluded the interview by saying that no matter how long he lived, he would never forget this experience. It was too horrible and too cruel for words. He had read of such plots in dime novels, but he never expected to be a victim like the ones he read about. He knew he was never going to be able to put it out of his mind, but now that he was free, he was going to try and do everything he could to forget about what happened. Gates told detectives he was sorry that he killed Heaton, but insisted he had to do it to save his own life. Lieutenant Oldian said in this first-person narrative that he had been a detective for quite a few years, but had never heard anything like the story Gates told him. After interrogating Gates for two hours, he was arrested and charged with Richard Heaton's murder.
0: After the interview with Gates wrapped up, the lieutenant received a report on the man, Frank, who Hyde Conrad named as being present at the South 34th Street house. Now, this was the giant man. The man was 54-year-old Frank Cordell, a private detective from Indiana. Kentucky Governor William Fields issued an extradition warrant and two days later, Frank Cordell was brought back to Louisville. Cordell told investigators he knew Heaton as Peter Brooks and Peter Brooks hired him as security because there'd been some robberies at the company's Louisville warehouse. One night as William Gates entered the company's offices, Heaton told Cordell that Gates had been the one stealing from him and ordered Cordell to detain him. So Cordell, the giant, held on to Gates while Heaton handcuffed him. They took Gates to a house rented by Heaton, and Cordell left, taking the train back to Indianapolis. Cordell said that he did not know until he was arrested that Peter Brooks, as he knew him, was actually Richard Heaton. Frank Cordell and Hyde Conrad, the organist messenger, were indicted on two counts by a grand jury. Number one, having unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously imprisoned William Gates. And number two, having confederated or banded themselves together for the purpose of intimidating, alarming, disturbing, or injuring William Gates. That's a mouthful. What does it mean? Conspiracy. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. It's conspiracy-ish. Conspiracy-ish, exactly. On March 11th, 1924, three days after Richard Heaton was killed, His funeral was held at Smith's Chapel in Louisville. Relatives and friends attended to hear the reading of the Episcopal Funeral Rite. There was no eulogy and no mention of how Heaton had died. William Gates was arraigned in court on Monday morning, March 12, 1924, just four days after Heaton kidnapped him. Gates was released on a $1,000 bond, which was signed by his father-in-law,
1: Okay, I loved being able to do these because I haven't been able to do them in a while. In 2023 dollars, the thousand dollars that the
0: father-in-law paid is $17,500. Two days after William Gates was arraigned, a coroner's inquest was held. Now, this actually caused me, Kath, to go back and do a little research on coroner's inquests. They're basically similar to a grand jury. They often determine what the cause of death was. Regular citizens take testimony. It's an investigative body, and it's done according to statute in each state. Here, it appears that they sort of treated it like a grand jury. So they hold this coroner's inquest. Gates was there, but he did not testify. Testifying as the primary witness was widow Mary Heaton. And for the first time, she said that she learned about her husband's nefarious plan in January, two months before her husband kidnapped Gates but she never told the police because her husband threatened to kill their children if she said anything. The next day, after hearing testimony from 10 witnesses, the inquest jury determined Gates was justified in fatally shooting Richard Heaton. But this was not the end of William Gates' legal woes.
1: In an article in the Louisville Courier-Journal on March 16, 1924, this is now two days after the inquest ruling, William Gates was charged in Texas with kidnapping and assault with attempt to murder. A Texas man named W.W. Anderson alleged that two months prior to Heaton's death, Gates told Heaton that Anderson was having an affair with Heaton's wife. So Heaton and Gates drove to Houston so that Heaton could get vengeance. The two of them kidnapped Anderson, beat him, and left him handcuffed to a tree in rural Houston for 24 hours. Heaton and Gates went back, uncuffed him, drove him back to Houston, and dropped him off. Now, interestingly, though, Kath, even though Gates was charged in Texas, they did not ask Kentucky to extradite him to face these charges. On that same day, the governor of South Carolina asked the governor of Kentucky to extradite William Gates. He was wanted in Lake City, South Carolina. On charges of assault and battery false imprisonment and conspiracy in connection with two alleged attacks on the lake city police chief south carolina was alleging that Heaton, a man thought to be gates who was calling himself w.a rogers and an unknown woman visited lake city south carolina at two different times in late 1923 this was five months prior to gates own attack During these visits, this terrible threesome allegedly took police Chief Wall, held him captive, and bound and gagged him and left him in nearby woods. Not surprisingly, this was done because Heaton believed Chief Wall had an affair with his wife. At the conclusion of the coroner's inquest in Kentucky, Gates walked out the doors of the room and was immediately arrested for these charges from South Carolina. He was later released on $3,000 bail, which is a whopping $53,000 in 2023 dollars, and again, it was paid for by his father-in-law. Now, almost a week later, the governor of Kentucky actually denied South Carolina's request to extradite Gates because Kentucky knew he was going to be a key prosecution witness at the trials of Frank Cordell and Hyde Conrad and did not want to turn him loose of the county.
0: They're like, you're not leaving Kentucky because if we send you to South Carolina, they're going to hook you up and put you in the pokey and you'll never be able to help us with our own trials. But
1: you know what was interesting, Kath? I also had the thought of in 1924, I think it was probably a lot easier to escape from jail. I read that when William Gates was six years old, his father was actually killed by somebody who shot him. The man was put in prison for life,
0: which actually counted to two years before the man escaped and was never seen again. So exactly one month after William Gates saved himself from certain death by escaping from the bedroom, Frank Cordell's trial began on April 8th, 1924. Five witnesses testified and Cordell took the stand in his own defense, denying any participation in the malevolence against Gates, as well as any conspiracy against him.
1: So as we've all been waiting for, William Gates testified for the prosecution. Now, the prosecution, of course, lobbed him some softballs. He knew what to answer, but the defense went after him to the point that Gates started looking up at the judge several times and saying, do I have to answer this question? And The judge said, if you're going to incriminate yourself, you don't have to answer. But if you're not going to incriminate yourself and don't answer the question, I will have to find you in contempt of court. The defense counsel conducted what the papers called a severe cross-examination. But after the judge explained to Gates his responsibility to answer, Gates actually started answering the defense's questions by saying those details were immaterial to the issue in the trial. According to an article in the Louisville Courier Journal, defense attorney L.D. Green poked and prodded at him enough that Gates actually spilled some tea about these trips to Houston and South Carolina. Now, remember the charge in Houston where a man alleged that Gates and Heaton had tied him to a tree for 24 hours? Gates admitted that he stayed in Houston for nearly 30 days at Heaton's request in search of this specific man. Initially, Gates hesitated to divulge the nature of these trips to either Texas or South Carolina. But finally, he said, OK, fine. We were there to locate a certain man and we found him. He also admitted that he went under the name W.A. Rogers, which is the name South Carolina had on their extradition, saying they now believed this man was Gates. Mm. And he did all this at the request of Heaton, and they actually did go to South Carolina to look for a specific man who had besmirched his wife.
0: That's probably a direct quote from the papers.
1: (laughs) Probably. He also said as part of this that the police chief was the man they were looking for in South Carolina, but said, I did not administer any personal violence, and Heaton only administered a little personal violence. Here's what's interesting. After this comes out, all the papers, of course, are going to the police chief in South Carolina, going, dude, what happened? What happened? Exactly. And I think that is, again, a quote. Yeah. And the
0: chief was pissed. And he said, I have nothing to say. Too much information has already gotten out. The facts will come out later because they were assuming that Gates would eventually be extradited to South Carolina to stand charges for whatever happened to him in the woods. I took it a different way, which was,
1: I'm embarrassed that this happened. It now became public. These two strangers got the drop on me. Totally. And handcuffed me and bound and gagged and hit me. I'm not sure if that really gives you a lot of credibility as a police no, chief. Totally.
0: So after three days of testimony where Gates admitted all these nefarious activities in two other states, the jury found Frank Cordell guilty on the charge of assault and battery, and he was sentenced to 60 days in jail. After serving his 60-day sentence, Cordell was extradited to Indiana to face charges of conspiracy and blackmail in a completely unrelated matter. Two weeks later, all charges against Hyde Conrad, the organist messenger, were (laughs) dropped.
1: So, Kath, now that the two trials that were keeping William Gates in Kentucky are finished, right? Because now the cases of Cordell and Conrad have been adjudicated. So Kentucky's governor sent a message to South Carolina's governor that the cases were over, so if they still wanted William Gates they needed to refile extradition papers. What I read in the newspaper is that the magistrate of Lake City who put these extradition papers together said, "No, no, no, these papers still remain active." So basically, the Kentucky governor is saying I need extradition, Lake City
0: is saying no you don't, and as far as I can tell, they're still at a standstill. I know, this is the funny <laughs> thing. I read an article that said a Louisville attorney visited South Carolina in the hopes of settling this matter. And that was it. Right. So we don't know what happened. I think they're still 99 years later waiting for a solution. Exactly. You, you know, the police chief was like, let's just let this drop. Right. <laughs> See, I actually think that's what it was. There is no need to prosecute this matter. They did not it's need, too need to bring
1: more salacious information into open
0: court in South Carolina. I have no doubt that's what it is. And with that, the case of the torture house was closed. Thanks for listening. We know the ending was like a dangling participle and we are sorry. We don't know what happened. <laughs>
1: we could not find anything Anything out. anywhere. And believe me, we, we tried. tried. If anybody knows more, let me know. Anybody from Louisville, (laughs) let us know. Hit us up. And if we're mispronouncing Louisville at all, Kathy's pronouncing it Louisville, I'm pronouncing it Louisville, and then I read somewhere else that sometimes residents call it just plain old Louisville. Yeah. Yeah, we're not residents, so we couldn't do that.
0: (laughs) We could have called it that. Mea culpa. Yeah.
2: (laughs) What's spring like in Park City, Utah?